Titus uh, was a pastor in the early church, and Paul, the apostle, is writing to uh, Titus, the pastor, who uh, ha- is in Crete, Crete's uh, island in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and lots of people have come to the Christian faith there in Crete, and now Titus is kind of organizing this whole deal. And we saw last week that uh, the first thing he was supposed to do uh, for the church was to appoint elders in every town. We talked about that uh, last week. And uh, tonight, we're going to look a little broadly. Like, there's more people in the church than just Titus and the elders, uh, that there's a whole bunch of other folks. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. So uh, let's read uh, all of chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. Uh, should be on the screen behind me. If it's not, uh, you've got this thing called a smartphone uh, in your hand. Um, that you can use. And maybe you need to put on airplane mode. Maybe that might help you. Um, it would me, because there's a really big NBA game on right now that I'm real interested in. Okay, all right, chapter two of Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what's good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children's children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we need more uh, uh, than just a uh, reasonable explanation of these verses tonight. Uh, Lord, that is, I, I, that is not what I want to do tonight. Uh, Lord, I want to be a part uh, of uh, these people who encounter you through your word by the power of your spirit that we might become changed. And Lord, we know that this happens week after week. A lot of times we don't even notice it. But, Lord, we, we do put our faith in you, uh, that you are changing us more into your image by the power of your word. And so do this work among us even now. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, what was that like, reading that text for you just now? Did, did you think, uh, wow, this is, like a, uh, this is from a bygone era. This proves that the Bible is indeed a relic. Um, When I was on vacation a few weeks ago, I read through Titus a whole bunch of times and made some little side notes as I read it. And I remember uh, reading this for the first time uh, while the kids were in rest time, taking naps. And uh, I remember being embarrassed 
And I was sitting all by myself, for the most part, in the condo. And I was embarrassed as I read these verses. But as I zoom out and I think about what does the Bible say about the parts uh, of these verses that I got embarrassed by, uh, there's more to it than just what we see here in the Bible, uh, in our text, in Titus 2. We've got to zoom out and see the whole thing. So let's look at the women part first. Uh, So it says, be submissive to your husband. That's got to go over like a lead balloon, right? Uh, But Paul says similar things. He says it in Ephesians 5. Uh, You see it in 1 Peter 3. This phrase, submit to your husbands. And when you hear that, at least when I hear that, uh, I uh, see uh, women, uh, a picture of women with cookbooks and aprons. I see a picture of a man in a recliner with remote controls in their hands. Is that what you see? That's what I see. But if you zoom out and you look at other passages of Scripture, you see more than just this, that the life of a woman is more than just a domestic life. If you look at Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31 uh, is the picture of an ideal woman. It's the, the, the ideal wise woman. And what you see in Proverbs 31 is something more than just a woman who deals with all things domestic. You see a woman who considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So what you see here is a woman who's into real estate, a woman who does investments, and a woman who does manual labor. So she's kind of like the ultimate worker. She's blue collar and white collar. And she's not confined only to domestic duties, but she indeed has a profession. She's making business investments. Okay, a little wider view of women. All right, and then we get the whole issue of slaves. And again, this isn't the only place in the New Testament that talks about slaves. You see it in Ephesians 6. You see it in Colossians 3. You see it in 1 Peter 2. And when we see the word, we think of race-based chattel slavery where slaves are the property of their masters and they lack legal rights. And this kind of slavery, the one that was practiced in our country for 400 years, is among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. But in the first century, when Titus is written, when those other passages in the New Testament is written, it's written in the Greco-Roman world. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were not born slaves. They weren't born slaves for their whole life. They weren't slaves because of their race. Instead, slaves in the first century Greco-Roman world were mostly prisoners of war, Or they were persons who were in debt, and they were working their debt off with their work. And then if you go back, you look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you see that those who are slaves because of debt, they're set free every seventh year. That's Old Testament law. You also see in the Old Testament law that it commanded death for stealing another person to become a slave. Okay, that's the Old Testament. Another place in the New Testament, you have this little bitty book in the New Testament called Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner, and he owned a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus had come to faith through the ministry of Paul. And Paul writes a letter to the slave master, and Paul asks the slave master to dissolve the master-slave relationship and asks him to replace it with a brother-to-brother relationship. Paul says, you need to treat Onesimus the same way that you would treat me. 
with that kind of dignity, that kind of respect. And after looking at this whole issue, issue of slavery in, in the scriptures, all, not all my questions were answered this week. Maybe they've not been for you either. But I think it's hard to call the Bible a pro-slavery document. All right. So I just addressed those two issues um, so that we can get to what this text is really all about. Okay? Now maybe we can really hear what this text. And what the text is saying is that sound, another word for sound is healthy, that healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. Healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. And we're going to see what is healthy living, why healthy living is important, and how do we become healthy people. What, why, how. Okay? Let's go with what. You see the what in verses 1 to 10 that we just read. In verses 1 to 10, you see six different groups. You see older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus, and then the slaves or the bond servants. Six different groups. And then you, you heard, you just, and you see it in the text in front of you, you see that there's 25 different character qualities that, are, that, that combined that those six groups are supposed to, um, to, to put into their life. Okay, 25. I'm not going to go through all 25 and explain them and then apply them, but I'm just going to pick the two that are repeated. The two that are repeated are love and self-control. Let's start with love. It's not surprising that Paul would tell the church at Crete to be a loving church. I mean, he summarized all the law with love God comprehensively and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, love is the Christian ethic. And so it's not surprising that in verse 2 that he tells older men to be sound in love. Then in verse 4, he tells older women to teach younger women to love their husbands and their children. So the older men, they, if they're like men in our society, especially men in the church even, is that older men have a tendency to be stoic, to be detached. They're just on the sidelines giving advice, dispensing wisdom. But not the older men in the church in Crete. And they're supposed to get off the sidelines, being wisdom dispensers, to get in the game and to build relationships and to love those in the church. Sound and love, older men. And then the older women. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children. You might say, why, why do they have to learn that? I mean, that's a given. But I don't think it is. Because our default, our, what is a given is that we look out for old number one. That's part of what it means to be a sinner. And that's why we need to be taught to love anyone, even our spouses and even our children. So, so not only is it hard to love because we're sinners and, as, as, as a default, but it's also hard to love because for many of us, we've never seen it. We live in a broken world. Perhaps you grew up, your family of origin is not Christian, or maybe your family of origin is professingly Christian, but fairly void of love. And the only way that you're going to become a loving person is to be taught, is to see it modeled. And that's part of what needs to happen here in the church, is that the older women are to teach the younger women to love their children and their husbands. So love, love is supposed to be a part of their life as the church. But so self-control. 
This one you see even more. We saw it last week in chapter 1, verse 8, that it's one of the qualifications for being an elder, self-control. Then in verse 2, the the older men are supposed to be self-controlled. The older women are to control their tongues and their, you see it, their alcohol intake. Apparently the women could drink the men under the table there in Crete. And then you see in verse 5 that the younger women are to be taught to be self-controlled. Verse 6, the younger men are to be self-controlled. Self-controlled, I mean, over and over and over and over again. And the reason is, is for what we saw in verse 12 last week in chapter 1. Remember, Paul describes the church as liars, evil beasts. Or not, not the church, he describes the, 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 the Cretans, the people in Crete this way, that they're liars, that they're evil beasts, and that they're lazy gluttons. Gluttons meaning that their eating is out of control. And then there in verse 3 we see that at least for the women that their tongues and their alcohol intake is out of control. So it's going to be a big deal that the church be different than the wider culture by having self-control in their lives. And here's the truth. Maybe eating and drinking, that's not where you lack control. You're pretty self-controlled in those areas. But maybe other things in your life are out of control. And they're out of control because something unhealthy controls you. For instance, if body image is what controls you, then your eating and exercising are out of control. And your life looks unhealthy because insecurity and vanity are what describe you. Or or take it, maybe it's money. Maybe money is what controls you and you're out of control and you're spending as you're just looking forward to your next expenditure that's going to give you pleasure. That your money's out of control because you're just looking to save up more and more and more so that you can find your security in money. So what have you become? Your unhealth means that you're greedy because money controls your life. And the only thing that can control you that leads to health is Jesus. The old Sunday school answer. And he's at the very center of sound doctrine. So that's what healthy people look like. That they're loving and they're self-controlled. But why is this such a big deal? Well, we see this in verses 1 to 10 too. It's a big deal because our living is seen. Our lives have an audience Our lives can be assessed by our behavior. And these groups, they're being watched. And they're being watched by those outside the church. Just look at our text. Look at verse 5. The younger women are to live in such a way that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 7. Titus is to be a model of good works. Verse 8, Titus' teaching is to have this, is to have such a character that it can't be condemned, that his opponents are being put to shame, and there's nothing evil to say about the church because his teaching has an audience. Verse 10, slaves are to live in such a way that they adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So Paul's essentially saying, I want the people in your church to live in such a way that it validates the truth and the beauty, and the goodness of Jesus. In other words, they're not just cultivating character to give God glory, though that's happening. They're not just cultivating 
godly character because it's the right thing to do or because it's good for them. Though that's true. They're cultivating godly character. They're, they're, they're cultivating healthy living because it has an effect on those who watch. Okay, this week, I, I, you know, you can find anything on Google. I tried to find out how many churches were in Lexington. I, I don't think I did it. But the closest I could come is I think there's maybe around 241 churches in Lexington. I th- I, truthfully, I think there's more than that, but that's just the best I could do. And it's been my experience. I, I've lived in Lexington 16 of the last 20 years of my life. I've lived in Kentucky uh, 35 of my 39 years. And uh, I've been around a lot of unchurched people. And um, it's been my experience that most unchurched people have had some exposure with the church. Either they were a part of a church themselves, or perhaps they know Christians who are part of a church. And for the most part, what I found in the unchurched is that they've been fed a steady diet of Christians and churches who can't apologize, who would rather give answers than listen to questions, who are hypocritical, and who are void of love and self-control. That's been my experience. And so when they meet you or they meet me, they've already created a mold of what a Christian is like. And the way that you break the mold is that you become a healthy Christian who's loving and has self-control. And then all of a sudden, they see something. And they see something different. Their definition of church, their definition of Christian has to change. So I think a good question for us is, how am I coming across to people who are unchurched who are watching me? Do the people at work see a workaholic? Do they see someone who doesn't take their work very seriously? What do your neighbors see? Do they see someone who's aloof and distant or someone who's loving? Do your unchurched family members see someone who talks about themselves all the time or who's genuinely interested in others? How do people receive you? Uh, this weekend, uh, we had foundations, you know, trying to do this 10 or less thing. Um, so we met on someone's back porch, and we were there Friday night and Saturday, and we're, it was going to be me plus nine, you know, 10. We've got to get to 10. And uh, nine folks were going to come, two of them couldn't come, and so we're seven. So uh, we go around, and I do this every single time, and it's almost always true that we start going around the circle. And I say, well, how, how did you get to Hope? Oh, I got to Hope because of... Um, I was, in, I was in class with someone, and they invited me. All right, how, how did you get to Hope? Well, my, my daughter invited me. How did you get to Hope? Oh, my neighbor invited me. Every single person, all seven of them, I was seven for seven this time. Seven for seven all got here because of one of you. They didn't get there because they were looking for our denomination. <laughs> they didn't get there because they drove past us all sign. I mean, we, we have a sign of, at a place we don't meet it right now. Uh, They got there because someone saw someone who's loving and self-controlled, and they came into church. But doesn't that feel crushing? The fact, doesn't it feel like a lot of pressure that people are watching you? They're watching me? Doesn't it feel like a lot of pressure that you've got to cultivate love and self-control in your life? I mean, I feel condemned just talking about it. I mean, where I live, you know, we, we have our own house. We don't share walls with anybody else, but we might as well. 
Our neighbors are about six feet from us. If I were to lay down flat on my back, I'd probably put my feet on my neighbor's house and my hands on my house. That's how close they are. And then I, 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 the street, um, um, everyone, for the most part, parks on the street, walks in and out of their house. People are on their front porch and their back porches all the time. I mean, if your, your life is about as public as it's going to get on my street. And we've lived there almost, I mean, we're almost at our five-year anniversary living in our house. And I can promise you, as we've been wrangling our kids in and out of the van, as they've overheard and seen the way that we've interacted with one another on the front porch, I shudder. Because I know that they've seen things in my life that are out of step with the gospel. So what should I do? Make some resolutions? Read a book? Go to a conference once COVID's over? Uh, is that what it's going to take? The answer is no, you know it. I know it too. That we need a power outside of ourselves, and that's exactly where Paul goes in this passage. You see it. How do you become a healthy person? The answer is easy. It's grace. Do you see it there in verse 11? Starting in verse 11, you see that it's not just grace that saves us. That's the way we usually think about it. Grace is what gets us out of hell and into heaven. Grace is what takes, uh, takes away uh, both our sin and its penalty and gives us the righteousness of God. That's, that's grace. It's what makes us an enemy of God and turns us into a friend of God, a son and daughter of God, not an enemy. That's grace. But grace isn't only what saves you. It's also what trains you. That's verse 12. Verse 12 says that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Training. And training is going to take effort. If you want the unhealthy thing that controls your life to not control you anymore, it's going to take effort. It's going to be hard. If you want to love someone who's different than you, it's going to be hard. It's going to take effort. If you want to love someone you don't like, it's going to be hard. If you want to love someone just for the long haul, it's going to be hard. It's going to take effort. It's going to be training. But after you've undergone the training and you are to look back to when you started the training you'll look back and say, I didn't do any of that. It felt like effort, but as I look back, all I can say is that that was grace. Grace was what was fueling me. Now, if I were Paul, I would have just stopped there at verse 14. He's been building this glorious argument and he's got to the top of the hill and he's just shouting the training grace of God at us. That is good news. But he adds verse 15 for some reason. And when you get to verse 14, the, the picture of the church that you have is that you've got these elders in the church. You've got the older men and women who are teaching the younger men and women You've got children in the church. But you've got one other person in the church, and it's the pastor. 
And in verse 15, Paul addresses Titus and he says, Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. In other words, Titus is going to play a different role than anyone else in this community. That he has spiritual authority and that it's possible that he's going to be disregarded by the Christians in his church. And Paul commands him to not let the folks in his church shirk his leadership. Now, a lot of you have been in church long enough that you've been around a power-hungry pastor before, and that's not what you have in Titus. Titus has given away leadership to the elders in every town. Titus has given away leadership to the older men and older women. He's given leadership to the younger women in the church. But there's a unique role that he plays. And it's the same role that pastors in every church plays. It's a role that nobody else can. It's one of spiritual authority. Can I be really honest with you? I don't want to have spiritual authority in your life. Truth is, I'd rather be your friend. Because I know my own shortcomings, I think, who am I? I also know there are going to be times in your life that the last thing, you don't want any authority in your life, especially mine. And so will you pray for me? Will you pray for me as I lean into this? That I might change. That God would help me become who he's called me to be. And you see here this wonderful community. You have a pastor. You have elders. You have younger women, younger women, younger men, older women, older men. And if they all play the roles that they're supposed to play, it's going to be a beautiful thing that the watching world sees. It's going to make a big impact. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this kind of gritty, really, this gritty picture of Christian community. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would play the roles that you set out for us to play. Do it for the glory of your name, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.